Hello, Rich Bowlers here, and thanks for downloading this episode of the Dad Mindset Show. Today, we chat with recent father and author of the popular philosophy newsletter Salmon Theory, Rob Stratino. Rob describes his inner journey grappling with trauma, which has helped him turn his life around and create a nurturing environment for his daughter. He's a deep thinker, a lover of finding things that feel counterintuitive, and in this episode, offers some great perspectives to reframe many of the hardest parts of parenting. I hope you enjoy this chat with Rob. Rob Stratino, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to actually talk to you in person because I've been reading your newsletters for some time now. Can you tell us a little bit about Salmon Theory? Yeah, um, I'm going to tell you, well, I'll tell you how it started. It started about six years ago because I was free. I'm a planner, right? I work at an advertising agency and but before that, I was freelancing, and uh, and I remembered having a chat with this recruiter, and she very politely and very wisely kind of said, "Look, Rob, you look like a really nice guy, but I'm going to meet thirty planners today. Why are you different?" And I was like, "Huh?" And surely, yes, the work I had done and the examples and the brands were one thing, but she was like, "What makes you like you?" And um, I went, I went home and thought about it, and. And kind of within a couple of days, I was because she gave me this example of a planner that was also really into political communication. And she was like, well, this guy's thing. He's the guy who's into political communication. So what's your thing? I was like, oh, fucking no, what is my thing? Um, so I went home, thought about it. And I kind of realized that a lifeline of mine until that point, and, and there's a bit of context I may need to give there in a second, uh, was philosophy. And so I thought, huh. There's a lot that philosophy has taught me about life, but also about planning. Maybe I should write about that. And so I kind of just sort of did a very crude sort of what you might call an MVP. Originally, the newsletter was actually called uh, A Philosopher and a Planner Walk into a Bar. Um, and, um, and I sent it around. And I was like, I'm thinking of publishing this thing. If I publish it, and it was originally on Tiny Letter. Um, I don't know if they're still around. Um, but I published around the tiny letter link and I was like, would you subscribe to this? And within a few days, about like 250 people said, yep, I'll, <laughs> here's my email. I was like, okay. So then I started playing around with it. And for a long time, um, and I say this because I don't really see it as exclusively a philosophy thing, but we're going to get into semantics for a while, which maybe it's fine because I'm a planner and I love that. Um, but for, for a while, I was like, if someone asks, I'm the guy who writes about philosophy and planning. And although shortly thereafter I got hired full-time at VCCP, um, it actually really helped me, um, I suppose, like build a little bit of a reputation that precedes me as that guy who writes that newsletter. Not that like that was the driver for it, but it certainly helped. Like it's, it's, it feels quite nice when someone goes, are you Rob, the guy that writes that thing? I go, yeah. And it's always a bit awkward, if I'm honest. Because <laughs> uh, I get, I get self-conscious about it, right? Because uh, I, I, I don't know if what people are going to say. People are like, oh, yeah, that's good stuff. Well done, man. Um, so, yeah, it started because of that, just a need to stand out in a freelancer market. Um, and also, I suppose, just a bit of an outlet because I've always, I've always learned by doing and writing is a type of doing because you it helps you articulate your thoughts better 
And it's a muscle. The more you do it, the stronger it gets, the more the more explosive power you get, so to speak, if you want to use a sports analogy. Um, and so as a result, I think uh, it, it helped me made a, make a better planner. Now, the name, which then changed, um, it's, a, it's a lovely example of how your subconscious works something out and then your conscious self kind of goes, yep, that's the reason why, but, but really it was a post-rationalization. <laughs> so salmon theory came to me as a combination of two things that I liked, which is fish and intellectual things. Uh, but then as I started thinking about it, I was like, huh, okay, so there's something here about like, obviously these are all theories and many thoughts and stuff. And a lot of philosophy is theory, although not all of it. Um, and salmon swims against the current. So it's lovely if I could find things that feel very counterintuitive and they swim against the current, but there's something we can learn from them. And that's kind of what planning is as well, to an extent. I would say planning is first and foremost, the fight against collective inertia. But we can get into that later if you want. <laughs> no, no that, I mean, that's a really good point because I suppose what, what, what has philosophy taught you about planning? Um, I think it's going to sound weird, but it, I think on reflection, it taught me what not to do. <laughs> um, I have, I used to have this thing about, I love philosophy. I hate philosophers. And the point of that would not generally true, but, but if you look at philosophers like, you know, Marcus Aurelius or Alain de Bouton or uh, Martin Nussbaum or whoever, like they, they're actually quite clear writers. And I like that. However, if you say philosophy, people always think of like mustachioed men from the 1800s, like <laughs> Nietzsche, yeah. that write extremely long sentences. And you don't know what the fuck's going on. Um, and I remember, um, I remember actually reading, uh, what was it? I, I, I bought at some point one of Nietzsche's books and apparently I think he split it up into two sections. One, which was like purely prose and the second section was just like aphorisms and like basically tweets, but before Twitter was a thing. And I couldn't stand the first section. I absolutely loved the second section. And the point of that was like, as soon as it starts feeling like you're, preaching a master thesis that people must adopt and you know you have the classic thing of like Immanuel Kant kind of going it's either like this or it's either like that and I don't think life works that way um, but if you find ways to pithily articulate a thought that makes you think that for me is where I get my sweet spot as far as philosophy goes and so I, I hated the first half of this Nietzsche book and I absolutely love the second half so what does that have to do with planning um, I think as a planner, there is definitely the the vice of wanting to explain the world and, and solve the world all in one go, when in fact, the best planning lessons I've ever witnessed or the best examples of planning I've ever witnessed is just someone very clearly articulating, this is one way of looking at it, but here's another simple way of looking at it that feels a bit odd, and maybe that's something for us to explore. Um and so I think that ability to kind of go, here's all this knowledge, but here's it boiled down to a simple thing that hopefully is memorable, because that's the other thing, right? I remember reading an article where someone was like, do we really need all these huge treatises on philosophy or do we just need the one-liners, like the maxims? And they kind of ended up going, well, you kind of only really need the maxims, but obviously you only get to the maxims once you write the, the big bloody things. 
But if you're not an academic, you can probably just get by pretty well with the maxims. Uh, if you properly like immerse yourself in what they mean and reflect on them. And the beautiful thing about maxims is they're memorable. You remember them. You don't need to reference a text. It's kind of lodged into your brain. And um, planning at its best is like that as well. If you're planning, what, whether it's like a set of recommendations or a story you're telling about a brand or something you're briefing creatives, if it's memorable, it is mo more likely to actually lead to somewhere. Exactly like a piece of communications, right? Yeah, so, like a North Star. Exactly. And also, it's like it's easy for you to explain without needing that piece of paper in front of you, right? Yeah. So all the things that I've ever learned or enjoyed about like good philosophy texts, I can probably like fairly quickly summarize in my head what the main gist was. And then I just work around that. So um, I think it's mainly that lesson of, yeah, like simplicity and trying to bring a bit of an edge, but, but ultimately like simplicity and a lot of philosophy is not simple which is why a lot of people think it's boring. So it's, it's like not. that simplicity on the far side of complexity is worth its waiting. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you gotta, you gotta go through the chaos, but then you go, right. I've been through the chaos. I've survived. Here's <laughs> what I think it means in a very straightforward way. Yeah. Um, and you, you use so, metaphor a lot as well, don't you? I do. Yeah. I, I, and metaphors are a brilliant example for that as well, aren't they? Because it's like, and again, like I've seen a lot of really good planners at VCP do this and I kind of try and learn from them, but they basically go, um, you know, this thing is a bit like that thing. And you go, oh yeah, that is a little bit. Like, I'll give you an example. We were talking about brands on social and brands on social don't behave like advertisers. They behave like stand-up comedians. So as soon as you go, you're basically testing a lot of gags. 90% of them are going to suck, but that's okay because some stand-up comedians literally go to small gigs. I think Chris Rock does this. They literally rock up with a piece of paper and they go, right, blah, 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 gag number one. People laugh. Okay. And they literally check. And they go, <laughs> have you ever thought about blah, blah, blah? And no one laughs. And they go, okay. And I just, I just did a discard movement if people yeah. can't really see it. Uh, but literally they go, this works, this doesn't. And they're just honest about it. And I think, uh, you know, in, in that instance, if you go, ooh, how do I approach a brand on social? You go, you approach it like a stand-up comedian. 98% of it's going to be completely crap, but that's fine. You got to go through it to see what works, and then you do more of what works. Yeah. Um, and this is uncomfortable for a lot of people, and it's certainly uncomfortable for planners because we like the right answer. But um, for an environment like that, a metaphor of stand-up comedians or a writer's room is actually far more useful than a metaphor of an account planner or an advertising thing. Yeah. So, I mean, you've become a recent parent as well. Congratulations. Yes. Uh, how old's your you. daughter? She's, she's going to be 10 months in a, in a week. And, and referring back to planning, you, you've said that parenting has made you a better planner. Can you talk to that? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to use a metaphor and hope for the best. <laughs> Please do. Um, the metaphor is you don't really get good at basketball by reading about basketball. You get really good at basketball by being fit enough that you don't need to think about what your body is doing and then you focus on the rest. So the metaphor, what it means in my head is that before Emma was born, that's my daughter's name, and, and, and many other things before that, like, you know, I'm very honest about having been in therapy for about four years. I've been 
on an antidepressive for about a year, which I probably was about five years too late to kind of just getting on with it. Uh, and I say this without exaggeration, it saved my life. Not because I was at risk of ending my life, but because my quality of life, imp as imposed by my illness, was was not great in hindsight. Um, you know, a lot of compulsive behaviors, a lot of just sheer survival, I suppose. And planning in a way was an outlet for that. And what I mean by that is being becoming good at planning, hopefully not sounding too arrogant when I say this, but becoming good at the job became, basically became an excuse to not deal with what I was feeling. And so as a result, I was reading a lot about it. I knew all the technicalities of it, but I didn't have that sense of like, ease and flow that sometimes you see in a LeBron James. By the way, I'm not big into basketball, but for some reason I went with basketball. But if you see LeBron James playing, he's not thinking about it. He's just fucking doing it. Yeah. Right? And it's all muscle memory, literally in his case. And it took me a long time to look at planning as that because planning, a lot of it require a lot of it kind of tends to involve a bit of an overthinking uh, tendency. And I would just overthink everything to the point that I wasn't really ever really sure about whether what I was doing was any good. And that is because I had a lot of emo emotional turmoil I had to deal with first. Now, you fast forward to now where I've worked out a lot of things that were holding me back in therapy. I think ph biologically, physically, the medication has helped me kind of keep a much steadier baseline as far as my, because I have both sort of depression, but also anxiety, but I'm kind of a functional depressive anxious person. Um, so the medication helps keep a lot of the, the bad habits and the bad instincts at bay. Um, and then Emma being born just kind of brought this sense of completeness to, I am not just a planner. My worth is far bigger than that. And it's almost like I'm a pie chart where planning is not 80% of me. It's maybe now like 40% of me. The other 40% is being a parent. And then there's me, I'm making it up by the way. Yeah. But like, it was far more balanced as a ratio. So how does that make me a better planner? I overthink less. I'm I'm more aware of my own worth as an individual, and I am more detached in a in a good way. That even if even if I as a planner I see something that's a bit dumb or a bit wrong, that's okay. That is not undermining myself of identity. But before Emma and the medication and the therapy and all the work I've done, I would literally think that was the end of the world. I said something silly, and I would think about it for five days. Or I said something that wasn't quite right, and it would haunt me for days. And now I'm like, hey, look, I said a silly thing. It's fine. People have already forgotten about it because they do. People don't think that much about us as we think. <laughs> um, and it's fine. And it just taught me as well to be a friend to myself, which I know sounds very woo-woo, but I was not a good friend to myself. I was not a good friend to my inner child, which is a concept I very much believe in. And um, as a result, I would just, I just made the job harder for me. I would take everything too seriously. I would take feedback too seriously. I would get defensive. I would overthink things. And now I'm like, if I don't have those things holding me back, I don't overthink planning. I keep things clear. Not, I don't try and be over clever, overly clever. If someone says, I don't think that's quite right, I go, huh, interesting, tell me. And we make it better together. Um, and I... I don't freak out when things don't go to plan. Well, sometimes I do because I don't like things not going to plan, but I'm much more aware of going, oh, I'm doing that. Let's rein it in again. Um, and so that may be a, a better planner. 
taking things not so seriously and enjoying my own company in the process. Yeah, disentangling that sort of sense of self-identity, uh, the identity piece. It's huge, 100%, isn't it? 100%. 100%. Why, do you, think, why do you think we actually go, do that? I definitely use it as a means of escaping. Um, I, I think, I think um, it, was, it was a means of, it, so there's a few things actually. It was a means of denial because as long as I kept busy, I didn't have to think about all the things that I had to resolve within me. So in that sense, it's a bit of an escape. Um, it also, weirdly, I think, was a means of self-harm. I think workaholism can become a mode of self-harm, and I've definitely done it for many years. I, I literally, until... My response to stressful situations has always been, if I work harder, it will be fine. So much so that in the, in the peak of 2020, lockdown, COVID, all of that, I was working really, I was working like not particularly long hours, but particularly intense hours. But then I had volunteer duties that I was doing with like community of strategists called groupthink. I was writing a newsletter. At some point I was writing it daily. I was basically just keeping myself so insanely busy. And I think part of that came from that need of something's gone wrong. And I probably need to unpack what I'm going to say next. I would somehow feel it was my fault and I would need to work hard to punish myself and make up for it. Um, and so that's where therapy kind of helped me untangle things where it was like the response to a crisis does not have to be more work. And it certainly doesn't have to be, oh, no, it's my responsibility to now make it good. You know, COVID was in some sense all of our responsibility to basically not fuck up. But working, doing more side projects and, and keeping myself busy to a fault was not going to help. But it was a means of escaping the, 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 the sense of crisis and doom. Um, but I think also deep down, every time things not go to plan, my, my inner child, the damaged side of my inner child, assumes that it was um, their fault. And therefore, we got to work extra hard to regain a sense of control and a sense of self-worth. Um, there's a lot in that sentence that perhaps I need to unpack. But what I can say is, um, as children, if you go through, I'm going to small it, I'm going to call it small T trauma. If you go to small T through small T trauma, not so much the things that happened to you, but rather the needs that were not met, you instinctively think it's your fault somehow, because that's how children's brains work. Yeah. That's how you and explain so, it away. Yeah. You're like, this didn't happen. What is wrong with me? And there are many, many instances in my life through no one's fault, really. My parents are not at fault at this at all. It's just things happened or things didn't happen uh, or I assimilated things in a certain way that basically planted in my brain the notion that when things go wrong, I need to make up for it. And so I had to disentangle all of that, really. So that's where it came from me. For me, everyone's a little bit different. But my response to stressful situations has, has historically always been, well, now I got to work two times harder to make sure this never happens again, which is unrealistic because bad things happen, uncertain things happen. But that's where it comes from me. Yeah. And it wouldn't have been good in the sense of like burnout as well, would it? Which I've experienced multiple times over the last 
15 years easily. Um, and yes, like there was just no sense of boundaries. There was just a sense of sheer sacrifice. I need to be of service even if I am serving others, but not myself. Yeah. So when did you start to notice the change when you were going through your therapy? Um, I actually have a very vivid memory of that, which is rare because my memory is not great. That's why I love, you know, pithy, memorable things because I, <laughs> I, I forget very easily. Um, it came in 2020 when I was just discussing this very topic with my therapist. And I've always thought I was much more of a words person, so much so that I write a newsletter, but I don't really feel comfortable like doing videos or anything. Um, but, but she encouraged me to do a bit of a visual, visualization exercise. And we were exploring this concept of an inner child uh, back then more. And she was like, just try and reflect on what your inner child is asking of you. And so I was doing a bit of like a live meditation with her, just my eyes closed thinking. She was just describing like, think of this, think of that. What do you see? And after a, a little while, I had this image of like, me and my inner child as basically, let's say my son, metaphorically. And I would be in the in the in my room doing my work, doing all these projects. My inner child would come in and they go, Hey, older Rob, um, I got a problem. Can you help me? And I go, I'm sorry, I can't. I'm too busy for you right now. And I just had this vivid, we didn't even, we weren't even expecting Emma back then, but I just had this vivid image of like this is what every toxic father does. So I have been a toxic father to my own inner child. And I just broke down in tears because I realized that I was basically neglecting a very young part of me who was desperate for attention, desperate for help, desperate for presence, desperate for just a word saying, it's okay. It's not your fault. Um, have you ever watched Good Goodwill Hunting? Yeah. That, yeah. So that scene where he goes, it's not your fault. He goes, I know. It's not your fault. I know. It's not. He says it like seven times and the dude just breaks down in tears. It was a version of that where I kind of went, I have not done this to my, I have not told this to my inner child probably since I was a child. I have never been friendly to my inner needs ever. I've always blamed myself for something. And so... That image stuck with me since then because every time I think, oh, I'm, I'm feeling a bit of emotional turmoil, I better get to work, I go, no, your inner child is crying. What you need to do is you need to go and hug them and say, I'm not going to leave here until you're fine. Yeah. And yeah, so that, it was that moment. It, it, it was a vivid image and visualization has been a wonderful tool for me ever since. Yeah, it, it's incredible, isn't it? When you actually sort of, frame it that way the idea and and also the idea that like imagining someone being ignored that many times over so many years you can imagine what that would do to that person and their sense of worth and you know like the the their inner sort of monologue as well about yeah. like why why is you know why is this happening it must be something i'm doing and like the the sort of i guess issues that would create too i I uh, heard someone talking about the idea of actually looking at yourself as a child, like a mm -hmm. photo or something. And, and like, would you talk to that child the way you just talk to yourself? 
you know the when we have like the inner critic and we're really kind of brutal to ourselves you know we i, I don't know <laughs> i often found that i would say things to myself internally that were way worse than i would ever say to anyone else but then you actually frame it of looking at that photo of yourself when you're like six or seven and go would you actually say it to that boy because that's actually who is hearing it and can you imagine how they would feel like someone that they look up to a, like an older version and and they hear, have that sort of abuse heaped on them like it would do all sorts of terrible things to a, a child and if you sort of play that story forward you know it just goes to show like why the wheels fall off if you just keep doing that over and over that's exactly right. And then it becomes familiar to you, right? I remember one, one other time speaking to my therapist, I was like, I feel like I'm emulating behavior that I've witnessed in the past that I don't like, and it damaged me. Why do I do that? And she was like, because that's what you know. Yeah. And, and it comes down to that. That is what you know. That is what you've been familiar with. You've probably never witnessed enough self-love to be able to emulate it. And so... Um, that is what you know. It's not, and again, she kind of went, it's not your fault. It's just, that's what, it's a bit like as well, that, that film, that Brazilian film, very famous, The City of Gods. Do you know that film? No, I don't. But it's by, but it's, it's from like early 2000s or something, but it's, it's beautiful, shocking film, but like, it's about the kids in the favelas in, um, I think Rio de Janeiro. Um, and essentially it's about a story of like, what, are, what are these kids prospects? They either get into gangs or they die or about 1% of them get into uni and, and, and get out. But the, the moral of the film is, well, obviously it's that it's really hard for these kids, but the real moral for me has always been, you cannot blame these kids for their life choices in the most part, because this is what they know. They've never grown up with the prospect that there may be another way. And as a result, you do what you can to survive. And that that is what inner trauma is um, i'm a big fan of uh, uh gabor mate the hungarian canadian physicist and he has this wonderful line which he says trauma is not what happens to you is what happens within you as a result of what happens to you yeah and it's it's a survival mechanism right uh in the past in my past working harder was a way to escape an otherwise quite unbearable reality, which involved like bullying in school and all sorts of sort of lack of support I felt at some point in my life. But I knew that if I kept working hard enough and getting good grades and thriving in school, one day I'd get the fuck out and finally be able to live my life. But then of course that trauma, that inner damage carried with me. I, I carried it with me uh, for a long time. And sometimes still do. It's it's part of me, right? That's the other thing. I'm not denying it, but I'm better at having a conversation with it. Yeah. Um, but it's a, yeah. but when you say that, Rob, it, it also sort of makes me think about how you actually demonstrate self-love to your daughter. Because That's exactly right. For right now is so important because she's watching you every minute of the day. And, and like... That's a huge responsibility because you can actually break that cycle, can't you? That's exactly it. So, so my big mission now is to basically a bit break that again small t trauma cycle. Um, and I always say it's it's funny. Like I always say this to my partner. I think we're both on the same page on that. But like we're gonna fuck up, right? But I just hope that we fuck up in different ways that were not the ways we got fucked up. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, just, don't, don't, don't repeat past mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. At least make yeah. new mistakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be um, original. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but essentially, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of very much focused on ensuring that Emma, Emma might have a lot of bad things to say about me when she's a teenager, but the one thing I hope she never feels compelled to say is that I was not emotionally around. Yeah. And obviously the risk of that is that I might be too emotionally around, too emotionally available, too emotionally honest, but that's okay. That's a new problem. I'll, I'll deal with it. Um, I would rather that than her feeling that she cannot talk to me about anything. And at least you'll be able to talk about it because you'll be talking yeah. about it. Yeah, exactly. And um, and it's very much something we we as a couple have done. Again, we've grown a lot uh, in that in that camp because it just really helps as a couple to understand your own small t traumas, and in order to then understand why the other person sometimes responds the way they do. And so. Again, that doesn't mean that we don't have fights or anything, but when we do, we go, pause, I know what's going on, we need some, we need some time to like, let all that play out, but, but I know where that's coming from. And so, um, yeah, the, the, the anger bit is not the problem, it's the lack of like, resolution and the lack of like, um, um, making amends, that's the problem. Yeah, so well, working towards the problem together. Problem. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's absolutely fine and a lot of the times understandable to kind of have an emotional outburst. But then once you, you pause and you work out where is that coming from, what sorts of things does this situation remind me of that kind of brought out that inner emotional raw energy? Um, once you understand that, you you just live a much more fulfilling life. And yeah. hopefully that emulates and that shows to Emma that expressing emotions is fine because you can always make up afterwards. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, you know. But I think showing that you're doing the work as well is so important mm -hmm. because like you say, we are definitely going to mess up so many times. You know, there's the ideal version of parenting and there's the real world where, as you put it, the rest of us live. But I think, the, I mean, the way I frame it, when there's like an argument or someone's triggered, it's almost like that internal family systems model that works for me, where it's like yes. there's a little like part of you that jumps up to protect the self. And it's like, right the guard at the gate like get back or whatever it's protecting but then the other person's little like sentries or whatever jump up as well and they're the ones that are actually going at it they're triggered and and to actually just pause and sort of realize that actually it's not ourselves arguing it's almost like versions of us that are trying to protect like the inner self and gives you that pause and ability to step aside and realize that okay we've just got to de-escalate this you know we've just got yes. to de-escalate you know, help everyone step down from the you know the parapet you know and and cool our jets but it's actually knowing that both of the actual selves so to speak the true people are not the actual ones being triggered it's just the parts yeah. of them that are there to protect of you know have spun out as the person was usually when they're young these parts spin out to sort of act as protectors and, yeah, um, if, if if you want to get nerdy about it, it's like we time travel for a moment. Yeah, totally. You literally, literally go back in time and you go, because like a, f a few, it's it's funny, like a few times where I go, why are you being like this? On reflection, I can always trace it back to a moment where I wish I'd said that to someone else in the past. 
Yeah. But for some reason, yeah. Raquel becomes the, the repository for that comment and vice versa. That's how trauma works, right? It's like, it's not the thing in front of you, like you say. It's just that thing reminds you of something way back that you wish you could have said that. But that's how our brains work, isn't it? It's taking yeah. whatever's happened in the past and tries to predict the future and try yes. to react to the future based on what's happened. And if yeah. you know, all we remember is those sort of situations, that's what's going to spring to mind in the moment. And I think the, the hardest thing about parenting is you overlay this with like a, a raging lethargy, like this fatigue through sleep oh, yeah. deprivation. And that just means that this is going to be instinctive. You're going to default to your training, as it were, not yeah. uh, not keeping your, your sort of higher purpose at the form, form front of your mind. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's funny, like I, I, there, there have been a couple of moments where this happened probably when Emma was much younger. And I was still, I mean, I, we're, I'm still trying to work out what the hell I'm, what the hell we're doing. But, I think we um, all are. <laughs> we, yeah, I think we all will be right. Um, but uh, at my most exhausted, I remember feeling quite frustrated that I don't know Emma didn't want to go to sleep, and in my inner mo dial monologue, I was like. Oh, come on, why are you doing this to me? And then very quickly I went, she's not doing anything to you. She's yeah. a baby. Like that's what, this is what she knows. She, her sleep patterns are literally completely upside down. Cause that when babies are born, like they basically, they're used to sleeping in the day and being awake at night. So it's, it's all, it's all messed up. Like this is, this is all she can do. Yeah. Um, she's trying to survive as best she can. So she's not doing anything to you. It's your response to the situation. So you're doing something to you. Um, and so when, at, when I can, I always try and like, if, if Emma is like particularly moany or upset about something, um, I, I try as much as I can to go, I'm sorry, you're going through this. I'm going to be here with you. So like, sometimes she's quite moany. I just go, I'm going to, I'm going to keep hugging you and singing to you until you feel like you can calm down. But I never... I hope, I mean, never say never, right? But I hope at, I, I can as much as possible never get to a position where I go, why, why are you doing this to me? <laughs> Rob, you know? that's amazing because I don't think many parents would be able to say that they actually can do that because it's so hard. Because I know I, I definitely had times when I was like, what the hell? You know, like, what have I got to do here? You know, like, why are you crying? You know, the stupid questions that actually can't be answered. And really, yeah. all we should be doing is just showing up and just comforting them. That's, you know, it's not about us. They're not challenging us personally. They're just mm -hmm. struggling and they just need comfort and to know that they're safe. And, and yet we take it personally. And especially when we're grumpy, like I had a situation last week where I was reading with Will and I laid down on the couch and I was, I was just completely shattered. And, you know, it's been a massive couple of weeks. And I was just really, really tired. And he was sort of messing around, sort of not reading certain words and then just like, nah, don't want to read that. Next next page, different thing. And I just got started getting really short. And I and then I just pulled myself back and went, hang on. Like, what's he gonna remember from this moment if I'm like this? He's gonna remember that dad didn't want to actually spend time with him and got short with him. And yeah. that's a terrible signal. And so it I really, is. I was actually quite glad because I have done that quite a bit because he has he has been sort of really pushing the edges when he's trying to play up when he's reading. 
And I just realized, like, I should just pause and be here, no matter what, and yeah. just read with him and, and try yeah. and make it as fun as possible. Because that's, that's what I can do. Whether he comes to the party or not is, is up to him. But I just need to show up and, and let him know that I'm there for him and I just want to spend this time with him. Yeah. How old is your son? Eight. Right. So he's starting to get to that place of like, let, let's see how far I can go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they get to that place. Let's see what easy. buttons I can push. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, just a couple of things on that. The, so you talked about perfection. We actually read this amazing book called The Good Enough Parent. Yeah. Um, and and it's basically, it's that philosophy of like, there you go, like philosophy as a word, but it's kind of not a philosophy book. It's just a how to think about things work. Um, but the general thesis just goes, you don't need to be perfect. You just need to be present and everything follows from there. The worst thing is you need to try and be perfect so much so that you create, firstly, you can't do it because it's impossible to be perfect. Yeah. But you also create this unrealistic expectation of how your kids, how good your kids should be before they can earn your respect. And that's quite damaging, right? Yeah. Um, I, I remember at some point, I don't remember where I read this, but I remember concluding that I never. I hope that Emma never feels like she needs to earn my respect. I hope I always remember I need to earn her respect. Yeah. And that's a very different thing. Um, the second thing is I actually read a book about um, Maria Montessori, who's famously created the Montessori educational method. Um, and one of the things that struck me was that she basically talks a lot about how we assume that children are half-formed humans. But actually, she goes, no, they're fully formed people that are young. There's a big difference. Because that suddenly makes you think that, one, it's not, what what they do has merit on its own. They are not incomplete versions of what you want them to be. That's just the journey, right? They're young and that's part of it. But so I think there's a degree of respect for what children's needs are that that puts in your mind. And then the second thing is she goes, the parent is not the star here. The parent is the facilitator. The parent is not the person that needs to entertain the child. It's just the person that needs to remove the barriers so entertainment can happen. And, and so if you apply that to education and how she thought, she basically goes, you need to give your child a sense of agency so that they can, to quote her, unleash their own powers. But your job is just to make sure that any barriers to do that, you get them out of the way. Obviously, any unsafe practices, you're there to make sure that those don't don't get in the way. But by and large, you're you're the passenger here, man. You're not the driver. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you just gotta facilitate as you go, and hope any kind of kind of make sure that they don't fall on the wrong path. But whatever the right path is, they will work it out, not you. Yeah, yeah. But that that's brilliant because it takes a lot of the heat off you as well. Yes. Which you know, I think most parents would attest that be amazing to actually reframe that way yeah and it's look it's hard because like obviously you don't want to use that as an excuse to then be a passive parent but i think yeah what you don't want is to be so controlling to what your kids should be that you want them to become many versions of you yeah and then on the other side you don't want to be the parent that's so sort of passive that they think you don't care that's exactly right that's exactly exactly right Hmm. I like that. Yeah. Um, one of the pieces that springs to mind just as we're chatting as well, you mentioned, um, you get to do it again tomorrow as well. And I think that's another way that we can go easy on ourselves. And, yes. and it's this, this way of reframing. Um, and also like 
reframing, we don't have to do something, we get to do something, which also yes. gives us a, a, a much better way of looking at how we parent. But the idea yeah. that if we do mess up, and we will so, you know, many, many times, we get to do it again tomorrow. And that's a positive. Yeah. It's like the film about time. I love that, like his monologue at the end where he talks about, you know, you live your full day and then you live it again. But next time you just pay attention and you just yes. breathe in and soak in all the moments. And, you know, you say hi to the person and you do this and you appreciate and you try and make people, you know, have a better time. And yes. I kind of think that's kind of what I aspire to with parenting as well. I think, you know, you're there to be present and just try to create the environment to help help these, you know, human beings, you know, flourish. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, it's It's been a really helpful reframe for me as well, especially when it comes to like, you know, in the context of parenting, the the classic trope. And I've seen many men, this is like, oh, you know, I'm, I can do stuff, but I don't want to change diapers. I, it's going to sound weird. I love changing diapers, right? <laughs> and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Um, firstly, with some exceptions, but Emma tends to be in a really good mood when I go and change her diaper. She just looks at me and this like, we're like, okay, we're going to do this now. And she starts blabbing on and it's just amazing. So I've always seen diaper changing as actually an amazing bonding experience. The other thing is you are literally putting them in comfort again yeah that is what diaper changing is it's not oh no i have to uh go and clean up it's basically. not about you yeah it's not about you it's about i get to be the person that put you comfortable again yeah and if you look at it that way it's like diapers diaper changing is great because can you imagine walking around with soiled pants <laughs> like i would be furious yeah i would be like don't talk to me. Yeah. Don't look at me. I hate you. But if someone goes, try to change that for you, I'd be like, please, thank you. And how so, about if I say some soothing things that you write write to you while I'm doing it? Like, yeah, I'll <laughs> sing to you. I'll move your little <laughs> leg and do a silly song. We'll do faces. I'll kind of put a little toy in front of you. Be like, that's amazing. Yeah. Sign me up. And and what what connection are you going to build with the person that keeps doing that more than everyone else? I mean, it's actually yeah. a golden opportunity, isn't it? When you look yeah. at it like that, to be the person that they know makes them feel the most comfortable in the world, the one that Absolutely. actually understands their pain. Yeah, and like there's another thing as well, which like there's that trope of like the the parent who's the fun parent, and I th I know a lot of men aspire to be the fun parent. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that, but there's ju that's just one side of it. You don't want to be the fun parent in a way that suddenly the your partner is seen as the not fun parent. That's not a very fair thing to do. But equally, uh, I think um, this notion of I want I want to be the fun parent can also create some unrealistic expectations when when your child is older, because then they think that every time they want to get your attention they need to be fun. And that is not a good place to be because it suddenly puts you in a position where as a child, you need to pay attention to your parents' needs before your own. You need to please them by being fun yeah. in order to get their attention. And I see a lot of that in me. And, and again, I, I, this is no one's fault really, but my dad has always been the fun parent. But what, that's done, that, what that done, has done over the years is that I've 
imprinted in my brain that to get someone's attention, I need to be fun. That's why I'm always cracking jokes in meetings and trying to make people laugh because that's how I think deep down I will earn their trust and attention. And that's a good thing, but it comes from a place that can be led astray. And so this multidimensionality of what the pen, what I'm going to speak exclusively about the dad side, obviously the mother side has other, has other complexities to it. But as a dad, I don't want to be the fun parent. I want to be the fun parent, but the disciplining parent, but the parent that solves problems. And I certainly don't want to be the dad that helps. This is another thing that we yeah. talk about. Language is important. I don't help. I handle things. Yeah. It's a very, very big difference. I am not helping mommy because I'm not a secondary character in your, in your, in your upbringing. I am handling things much like mommy handles things. Yeah. It's a big, big, big That's right. That. I think that totally doesn't get paid enough attention to yeah like uh so um i do like yeah. your point about being the swiss army knife as well you know like mm. in the sense of you know being adaptable and being being able to actually and you're right in in talking about sometimes we have to change so many different yeah. uh, from being so many different types of person within like a minute because we're adapting to the situation i've seen parents that we are friends with do that spectacularly and even before emma was born like i would literally see like they they have a daughter who's now i think two almost three years old i think and she's a lovely child super friendly uh just adorable but you know she's a child sometimes she like wants to see how far she or she wants to do things she doesn't understand why she can't go up and down the stairs by herself because she may fall hurt herself etc so I've seen a few times this this couple, notably the mother, who I think does it very, very well. She will literally put on this stern face going, no, and this is why. And she'll explain why she's saying you can't go up the stairs by yourself, et cetera. And the child would be like so upset. But then, but then she changes and she goes, do you understand why I'm telling you this? And you start seeing it melting a little bit, her tone. And the child goes, yes, okay. And she, she starts unpacking it. And then the, the second after she goes, do you want to cuddle? And then she just start cuddling. And this transition from discipline to compassion to love and play, it's beautiful. Like it shows you again that like anger and, and assertiveness are not an end state. They're just something that happens. Anger is actually, I, I saw this brilliant um uh, description, anger is a unit of energy for change, right? So you need that to sort of pause something that you don't want it to happen, but then very quickly you go, this is, you know, and, and by the way, I say anger, I don't mean in an angry way, uh, but I mean just like sharpness. discipline, yeah. going like sharpness, yes, good language for that. So sharpness going, no, and this is why, and then quickly going, okay, but let me explain to you, and I want you to understand, and I'm not just telling this because I'm your dad, whatever. And then very quickly, you switch to love. And seeing that, I was like, oh, wow, that's what I want to do. Yeah, that, That's beautiful, that transition. It's like three different people in the same person. It's beautiful. Yeah, but what message does that tell the child? You know, it's actually not because you're a bad person that I'm shouting. Yeah. And, you know, you might have thought that instinctively initially, but no, no all of a sudden it's all good and mom was just trying to protect me it's beautiful it is yeah. it's beautiful but it's seeing also, that stuff though isn't it rob it's actually seeing yeah. that stuff that's the the thing we need to do to be able to role model it and role model it and learn it ourselves you can't yeah. read that from a book very easily i don't think 
100%. And that goes back to a bit like, you know, another way into this whole basket, silly basketball analogy. But yeah, this goes beyond theory. You got to witness it. There's this, there's this really good articulation that is, is used a lot when it comes to like representation of like black people or brown people in culture. You can't be what you can't see. Right. So as soon as young black girls see a black uh, little mermaid on the trailer and they're like, oh, my gosh, he's by beautiful. Like you can't be what you can't see. And I think it's very true in parenting as well, where you go, if you witness these positive behaviors being represented in front of you, then you go, oh, this is an option as well. Maybe I want to pursue that rather than, you know dad who doesn't display emotion it sort of primes you as well because you can actually you can set yourself up i i used to think this about the cartoon bluey i actually felt it was one of the best ways to prime my day yes i would sit down and watch a seven minute episode and it would just give me ideas i'd be like i could totally do that i'm totally going to use that and it just helped me sort of set myself up for I'm totally going to goof around in the kitchen today. That's going to be it. That's we're going to play that yeah. game. And I think being, so that seeing things and mimicking because we are mirror devices. We're yeah. so much better at that. I think and I think it's so easy to get stuck up in your head so much as a parent yeah. when really you just need to see someone do it and then just copy it. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 yeah, it then brings out that lighter side as well, right? I always joke like at work, you know, like there's always that thing of like, oh, yeah, have a good evening. Do you have good plans for this evening? And I go, yes, I'm going to take off my shoes, throw myself to the floor and make silly noises. Because that is literally what I do when I get home. I'm like, <laughs> I don't care how this makes me look. I just want my daughter to have a laugh and yeah. to play. But there's this video that is so humiliating we did the other week where emma like she's still learning how to like she knows how to turn but she's learning how to crawl so she does a lot of like on her back just like a lot of movement and it's like she's i, I say she's like running and in a green screen like a batman <laughs> film in the 70s you know uh and i literally got down and i did the same and the more i did it the more she did it and she was just having a blast i look so ridiculous in that you'd, you'd go is that a planning director or is that just some <laughs> silly man going around? But I love it. I it's love a nice that dad. Side That's it. what it is. Yeah, that's a dad just having fun, trying to do the best and the best he can. Well, Rob, it's so good to hear all these sort of heartening stories about how you've transitioned and that you are a dad just doing the best you can. And I just want to take my hat mm-hmm. off to you and just say, keep up the great work it's it's really great to to see you've come so far and and way ahead of many of us well thank you and i'm, I'm very thankful firstly that you invited me for this but just that you do this right it's before emma was born i i, I was just a bit desperate to find good resources about what it means to be a good dad because there's a lot for moms and that's brilliant and a lot of it was like technical but um yeah books like the good enough parents or some other resources I follow, but definitely your podcast. Like it just brings these stories of men being good men. You know, I think there's a whole thing we could get into, which is just how are we representing masculinity in everyday life and, and being able to show this, this plethora of emotional availability from anger to compassion, to play, to silliness all in one minute. It's beautiful. And so, yeah, we're, we're all doing our best, but what you're doing is very, very good. So I hope more people um, pay attention to it as well. Thanks, Rob. Love your work. Thanks ever so much for chatting. Thanks, man. Appreciate you. Well, thanks for listening. 
If you'd like to find out more about Rob and his newsletter, Salmon Theory, head on over to thedadmindset.com, where you can find relevant links to this episode. If you'd like to be updated when the next interview is released, make sure to subscribe to the newsletter on the Dad Mindset website. I send out a weekly highlight of conversations as well as links to other interesting topics that I think you'll enjoy. In the meantime, have a great week. Thanks for your support and enjoy your caffeinated beverage. <laughs>